Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Has Alzheimer's disease touched your family? There are some 50,000 Utahns affected by Alzheimer's. Utah has the nation's highest growth rate of the disease, 127%. There are more than 5 million cases of Alzheimer's in the U.S. today. By 2050, that number is expected to nearly triple to 13.8 million. Care costs will reach over $1.2 billion, a trillion dollars. There's no known cure, of course, and the impact on afflicted individuals and families is devastating. And the Alzheimer's process may begin decades before diagnosis, but Maria Norton, USU Associate Professor of Family, Consumer, and Human Development, says that while there are some factors we're born with, that is, genes can't be modified, there are a host of factors that have been shown to affect our risk for Alzheimer's. They can be changed. We'll be talking about Alzheimer's and healthy aging with Maria Norton following the news. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater through August 10th in Logan with Fiddler on the Roof, one of the longest-running shows on Broadway and winner of nine Tony Awards, starring Michael Ballam. Information at utahfestival.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Has Alzheimer's disease touched your family? How are the older people in your family doing? We have a gerontologist with us today to talk mostly about Alzheimer's. We could branch out into other areas of aging. There are some 50,000 Utahns affected by Alzheimer's disease. Utah has the nation's highest growth rate in the disease, 127%. There are more than 5 million cases of Alzheimer's in the U.S. today. By 2050, that number is expected to nearly triple to 13.8 million. Care costs will reach over $1.2 trillion. There's no known cure. The impact, of course, on afflicted individuals and their families is devastating. The process may begin decades before diagnosis. But Maria Norton, USU Associate Professor of Family, Consumer, and Human Development, says that while there are some factors we're born with in our genes, they can't be modified. There is a host of factors that have been shown to affect our risk for Alzheimer's. They are changeable. We're going to talk about some of those risk factors, how we can reduce our risk for Alzheimer's, adopt healthy lifestyle habits as individuals and as a society. Uh, Maria Norton will give a Sunrise Sessions talk that's sponsored by the USU Office of Research and Graduate Studies that's in Salt Lake City on Friday morning at 7.30, titled Healthy Aging, Healthy Society. And uh, we welcome in Maria Norton to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Uh, you have been involved as one of the researchers, uh, I think a Principal researcher on the Cache County study for uh, memory in aging, which is a, a landmark study. Tell us a little bit about this. Well, Tom, it started back in 1994, and we've been continuously funded since then by the National Institute on Aging. Our first objective was really to try to ascertain just how many cases of Alzheimer's there were in this county. And we were successfully able to recruit 5,092 participants that uh, were over the age of 65, which represents... 90% of the county. And this is uh, wonderful scientifically because it helps us to get a better, more accurate picture of what's going on in, in an entire population. You have less bias. So a very important study about Duke University and some other universities but right here in, in Cache County. Um, what were the goals of the study? What were you trying to find out? We wanted to be able to estimate accurately what the prevalence rates were uh, within each gender, different age groups, and even by genotype for a particular gene that we were studying. We also wanted to estimate the incidence rates or just how many new cases develop each year so that we could then make future projections. We were examining primarily some medications. So there was a big, strong pharmacoepidemiology angle to it where we were looking at which medications might 
older adults be taking for other reasons that serendipitously we discover are associated with lower Alzheimer's risk. Then we expanded from those original aims, uh, and of course looking at uh, gene by environment interactions as well, which is uh, definitely probably where a lot of the story is, rather than genes alone or environmental factors alone. And we've expanded since that in those initial objectives with uh, several spin-off studies that we'll get a chance to probably talk about. Uh, I had been under the impression that this was purely genetic. That, uh, you know, if I have uh, a gene for Alzheimer's, I'm going to get the disease at some point. But you're telling me that there are some risk factors which we can control, which are environmental. That's correct. And actually, Tom, on the genetic side, there are really two types of genes. There are what we call deterministic genes. And this type of gene, if you inherit it from your parents, means you will get Alzheimer's disease. And those typically are earlier onset cases. But it turns out that that makes up only about 5% of all Alzheimer's cases. The other 95% come from what we call sporadic Alzheimer's disease or genes which are not an absolute guarantee that you'll get the disease. They are what we call risk genes, genes that are associated with but not an absolute certainty. They're, they're associated with a higher likelihood. Uh, but many people with some of those risk genes do escape Alzheimer's disease altogether, and we think that that's largely because of some environmental factors, or also potentially some so-called protective genes, some genes that actually lower risk. Mm -hmm. But there certainly is a, a wealth of uh, research out there that's looking at modifiable lifestyle factors, things we can actually do something about, since right now we can't go to the corner drugstore and say, you know, I'd like a new set of genes, please. Right. We can't do that yet. Yeah. Uh, although that, you know, who knows, <coughs> that might be coming. You never know. <laughs> With advances in science. So uh, what percentages here? You say there's one gene that's, that's not really modifiable by environmental factors. Right? If, if you get that gene, if you have that gene, uh, you're going to get the disease, and then there's the other one. What, what, what is, how does it break out? Well, it's, uh, it, it's the 5% and 95% mm. of the Alzheimer's cases, but it's, it's really extremely rare. Mm. Um, but it, it doesn't make up very many of the Alzheimer's cases at all. Mm. So the ones that the, the vast majority of individuals uh, in society need to be thinking about are these, uh, you know, the other genes, the genes that are related to just elevated risk. But oftentimes, uh, even with the most famous one that's been around for some uh, 20 years, the apolipoprotein E, or APOE gene, the E4 allele is associated with higher risk, and yet we find people that have that gene, or that variant, uh, who escape Alzheimer's altogether. So you were asking a minute ago about different types of lifestyle factors, and this is where we're encouraged and excited about some of the strong associations that we in Cache County at Utah State have been finding as we've studied these, these uh, generous individuals over the last nearly 20 years, as well as other uh, studies by colleagues uh, nationally and internationally. One of the factors that we've looked at is, uh, as I said, medications and older Persons often take uh, anti-inflammatory drugs for things like arthritis. And we found an association of lower risk among those who were taking these NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen. We also looked at statins, cholesterol-lowering agents, uh, because there was some evidence elsewhere that that might be associated. We did not find that in Cache County, any, any link. We've also studied uh, antihypertensive medications. Many uh, older adults have high blood pressure and and uh, we did find that at least some classes of medications in the broad category of antihypertensives were also associated with lower risk. Now, these are association studies, and we have to bear in mind that they're not the same thing as a clinical trial where you randomly assign people to groups, and those are more scientifically sound and can give us more information about causal relationships. Um, we also studied 
diet. Um, Dr. Heidi Wengreen found that diets that were rich in fruits and vegetables and whole grains, think the, the type of diet that's similar, say, to the Mediterranean diet that we may know about, that individuals are already aware would lower your risk for high blood pressure, for diabetes, for heart attacks, for strokes. So good, strong vascular health. Well, what we're learning now is there's yet one more reason to have a diet of that type because, indeed, it's, it's associated with a much slower rate of cognitive decline in late life. Hmm. What about keeping your mind active? Would that have any effect at all? Yes, there's, there's actually a, a hypothesis that's been out for a couple of decades at least called the cognitive reserve hypothesis. And the idea there is that if we keep our brain stimulated and challenged, then we're actually able to, in a sense, build stronger muscles in the brain or build new connections so that if we do happen to get hit with a neurodegenerative process such as Alzheimer's disease, we won't look like we have Alzheimer's disease because there's enough extra brain matter there to compensate. We learn different ways of accessing the information. Now, this cognitive stimulation can come in a variety of ways. Um, the one that's probably most heavily studied is higher formal education, and that's associated with lower risk. Mm. Uh, but then those kinds of... Uh, Cognitive challenges that are healthy for us uh, that keep our brain alert and keep our brain growing and healthy uh, could come from occupational experiences. If there's uh, cognitive complexity involved in your job, and that could be having to do with information processing or uh, interacting with humans, supervision, those kinds of tasks, or even working with machinery. Now, uh, besides occupation, we have leisure activities and hobbies. So learning a new instrument, deciding you're going to learn to speak a new foreign language. You could start that at age 85. There's nothing that says that you have to be uh, in the primary school to, to start language, for example. Mm. You know, bridge, the, the kinds of games that people enjoy playing. These things are all healthy mm. to keep the brain sharp. And social engagement, being in, connected with other people is important. I think the person who is completely socially isolated and doing a lot of Sudoku all alone without other people will not fare as well as a person who also has a chance to be interacting with people because, well, on many different levels, the social supports, uh, the emotional side of it. But there's further cognitive stimulation that just comes from being socially active mm -hmm. as well. So uh, you're saying, I want to emphasize this, uh, even some people who have got the disease their their brain is able to work around that if they have kept uh, mentally active? Well, the interesting thing is uh, y you have to think about the, the overall trajectory of as we get older, how is our memory functioning? And for almost all of us, there's going to be at least a little bit of gradual decline. I can't remember where I placed those keys, and that's frustrating. Uh, that isn't Alzheimer's disease. This is just normal age-related um, losses of memory, and they tend to be rather minor, and you can adapt to them. But then if you do have Alzheimer's disease process going on, there's uh, what we call a latent stage, which actually is before the process even began, and that's a point of intervention that we're excited about finding ways that decades before a person even shows the signs that we might be able to provide interventions to steer them away from that trajectory. Then there's uh, what we call the pre-symptomatic stage where you don't really look like you have Alzheimer's disease and you're actually functioning pretty well. And yet the classic hallmark um, uh, plaques and, and 
of uh, amyloid beta proteins that get clumped together. They can actually start appearing in the blood and cerebral spinal fluid. So there may be some biomarkers uh, that can provide evidence that a person is kind of on that trajectory, and yet still they look like they're functioning okay. And then later, if it does progress, you get into the symptomatic phase where an actual uh, clinical diagnosis can be rendered. But in every one of these phases, there's hope for helping uh, to improve quality of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is hopeful, I, you know, the, the, the results of the, the study. Um, and that's important for us as a society because uh, the, the numbers we've been uh, looking at, uh, 5 million cases today in the U.S., that's expected to nearly triple by 2050. The costs are huge, $1.2 trillion. And uh, caregiving is, is such a burden on a lot of families. Uh, uh, most a lot of Alzheimer's patients are at home, or the majority, right? Yes, it actually turns out that about 80% of persons with Alzheimer's disease are cared for at home by unpaid family caregivers, and they provide some 17.5 billion hours of care unpaid each year. And, of course, that that uh, experience of caregiving can be a positive, have positive sides and really increase the bond between those two individuals. But uh, it, it does come at a cost. Oftentimes, caregivers find themselves just sheer exhaustion, um, high levels of burden and fatigue and emotional stress, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes neglecting their own health Mm -hmm. because they just simply feel like, I can't stop. I have things I need to do. And so we do worry about caregivers' health and well-being. Yeah. I wonder, just on a a personal level, as a researcher, you the, the study, the Cache County study, you go back every few years? Is that that's what you do? Yeah, the, what, we, what we refer to as the parent study, the original study that began in 1994, that one wound down in 2011. And during that period of time, we did go out every three years trying to ascertain the, the new cases that had developed. We didn't go back and revisit those who had a prior diagnosis of uh, dementia of any type. And that is necessary to be able to make estimates for incidence rates of how many new cases we see. But uh, we did that for four waves, or every three years. And then that study wound down, and then other studies sprung from that. And so as you go out and you you meet the people every three or four years, some of them will have developed dementia and Alzheimer's, and, and you get snapshots as you, as you go back. That's... Uh, that's got to be hard, just on a personal level. It is, and actually, I had the misfortune of not being one that was out there in the field. I mm-hmm. was one of the folks in the office uh, directing the traffic, but our clinical teams did get attached to people mm-hmm. and to see them, and from earlier visits, functioning well and being cheerful and sharing stories about their kids to declining. That is difficult. Yeah. But I think one of the reasons for the success of the study is our, our clinical teams that went out there, um, notably Tony Calvert and uh, uh, Carol Leslie, they they really created a strong bond of trust and friendship, I think, mm-hmm. over the years. Yeah. This is such a cruel disease because it, it takes the person, essentially takes who the person is that we've been used to away from us slowly. The, it's, it's absolutely right. Uh, I think you can think about many diff- a host of other types of health conditions, which sadly shorten our lives. They reduce our functional ability to get along and do the normal things. We might experience pain and suffering, and yet we are still there inside our brain, and our, we're still who we are. Yeah. Um, Alzheimer's is uh, this insidious destroying of self, really mm-hmm. removing the identity of the individual. And uh, it's, 
it, it plays a very heavy toll yeah. on families. Because so, right now it's it's not something that we have a cure for. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been studying this. We, it was discovered in 1901 by a German psychiatrist uh, for whom it was named. And a very heavy focus for the last 30, 40 years. But we don't have a cure. There's a lot of promising leads and many different potential mechanisms that lead to Alzheimer's that are being investigated we just simply don't have a cure right now. Mm-hmm. And frankly, we're not positive what the real cause is. In all likelihood, there may be multiple causes. In other words, multiple ways that you actually could end up with this Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're still sort of at the beginnings of, of or, uh, you know, we're not near the end of, of, of uh, the knowledge that we need to, to get with, with Alzheimer's. Yeah, I, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't say that we're at the beginning. I say we've come a long way mm-hmm. where we can... Um, suggest to the common man or woman to uh, engage in certain types of modifiable behaviors, and we can get to talking about a little bit more of what some of those are, that can actually help their odds, help their chances. One of the areas uh, that I've actually begun to add to this overall effort is looking at uh, psychological stress that we experience across our lifespan and finding some very interesting Results that are consistent with what has been found in other animal studies as well as human studies, that being exposed to long periods of chronic, intense psychological stress mm. actually has an underlying biological mechanism of the, the, the surge of the stress-related hormones and what these glucocorticoids are doing to our brain, and it, it's resulted in the shrinkage of the hippocampus, the region in the brain that's responsible for learning and memory, and and individuals are at higher risk. We've published several papers looking at stress. But the hope is, and our discoveries as well, are that not everybody that has those stressors will end up with Alzheimer's disease or more rapid decline. So it's, it's so complex, and humans are so complex, and our whole life experience is so complex that we have to be very careful and thoughtful about looking at what might be some contextual factors that would help Um, determine what subgroup is going to be really unaffected by these stressors. There are certainly hypotheses about resilience. Having a lot of stress earlier in life for some individuals seems to toughen them up and make them more able to to stand stressors later on and possibly cope with all kinds of challenges and maybe fare better, Hmm. whereas others are more vulnerable. Hmm. It could be a combination of genes, quite likely, as well as maybe learned behaviors or, or other things that are maybe less healthy in their lives. We're talking about Alzheimer's disease today. Uh, Maria Norton is associate professor in the Department of Family, Consumer, and Human Development at Utah State University. Uh, has been a lead investigator on a landmark study, the Cache County um, Study on Memory and Aging, which has been ongoing for some 18 years, enrolled in some 90% of uh, residents over 65 and has been producing some very interesting results. And uh, one of those results, and there's some other studies ongoing as well, is that we can have some hope. A large majority of uh, genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's um, is open to some modifiable factors, is is what Maria Norton is telling us, which we can change. We'll get into more of those. And I'll ask a little bit more about uh, the difference that uh, Maria Norton has identified as 
a lot of us go through stress, and stress can have a negative effect, but some people end up being resilient. We'll, we'll ask about that as well. We'll get into some uh, conversation about how to uh, give care and, uh, and uh, what to do if uh, you have a loved one afflicted with Alzheimer's disease. We're asking you, and we'd love to have you participate in the program at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Has Alzheimer's disease touched your family? Some 50,000 Utahns are uh, affected. Uh, Utah has the nation's highest growth rate of the disease, 127%, so many of us are affected. We invite you to share your story. How is it affecting you and your family? What decisions have you wrestled with regarding care for your loved one? A vast majority of Alzheimer's patients are cared for at home. How are you preserving your memories? Tell us about your loved one. We're going to be talking about Alzheimer's. You can ask your question of Maria Norton. Maria Norton will be giving uh, the Sunrise Sessions talk. These are ongoing series of talk in Salt Lake City sponsored by the uh, Research and Graduate Studies Office at USU. And uh, that's 7.30 in the morning, uh, and that is in Salt Lake City at the Little America Hotel, I believe. And uh, you can find out more about that by going to rgs.usu.edu slash sunrise. More with Maria Norton on Alzheimer's disease and uh, gerontology in, uh, in general following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Square One Printing, 630 West, 200 North, Logan. Personalized printing for home or business, including directories, booklets, marketing pieces, posters, and employee or owner manuals. Information at squareoneprinting.com. Did you know that positive coping strategies can help slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease and dementia? So, if you are a caregiver, take care of yourself, count your blessings, and ask for help when you need it. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Some 50,000 Utahns are affected by Alzheimer's disease right now. Utah has the nation's highest growth rate of the disease, 127%. There are more than 5 million cases of Alzheimer's in the U.S. today. By 2050, that number is expected to nearly triple to 13.8 million. And care costs will reach over $1.2 trillion. That's just with Alzheimer's. There's no known cure, of course, with uh, ongoing studies. And one of the big ones is the Cache County study on memory and aging. And uh, my guest today, Maria Norton, is the lead investigator on that. Uh, she's also uh, the investigator in several other studies, which we'll get talking about. And uh, she and others have identified uh, risk factors. Uh, the good news is that uh, many of these are changeable, they're modifiable. We can change our lifestyle and uh, reduce our risk of getting Alzheimer's. And uh, so we'd welcome your questions for Maria Norton at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. If you're currently giving care to a loved one with Alzheimer's, we're going to get in talking about that. We'd love to hear your story if you'd uh, you'd like to call and and tell us about that. Or you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Or you can uh, get to us uh, at our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. How has Alzheimer's affected you and your family? What decisions have you wrestled with regarding care? 
Uh, how are you preserving the memories? Uh, that can be a very uh, interesting, poignant uh, matter that the families have to wrestle with. The number is 1-800-826-1495. Uh, so we've talked a bit about um, some of the, the risk factors, but some some general headings. For example, are you more likely to get Alzheimer's if you're a woman? What about if you're a minority? Right. Uh, minorities at higher risk. Women are at higher risk. Smokers are at higher risk. Uh, persons who have had a traumatic brain injury are at higher risk. And see, some of these things, um, the latter two being examples of things that we could perhaps modify. Maybe you can't prevent yourself from getting in a car accident, but you can wear a seatbelt to protect the head from further damage. You can wear helmets when you're riding your bike. Um, you can quit smoking, and there's now one more reason to quit smoking. Um, other factors uh, would be um, the healthy diet, not leading a sedentary life where you're on a, a couch, a couch potato. This is really unhealthy. You need to be able to get up and move. We found in the Cache County study, for example, that those persons who engaged in at least five hours a week of at least moderate level of activity, and this could be a senior citizen a friend group that's out walking in the morning together, uh, that this was uh, related to much slower rates of cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. So the healthy diet, the, the exercise, talking to your physician about management of other health conditions and some of those medications that we talked about, uh, quitting smoking, absolutely. Um, and then we talked a moment ago about how stress can impact our mm -hmm. risk. And frankly, there's a variety of ways that people deal with stress. Some of the ways which are not as healthy actually end up not protecting you from Alzheimer's, but there are ways that we call problem-focused coping that actually do uh, tend to protect us more. If you, if you can just deal with looking at the concrete aspects of a problem, figuring out the ways that you can change that and empowers you to know that you've made a difference, you can move ahead. And a lot of it is just kind of how we think about our problems and approach them. G getting that social support, engaging other people, and it goes both directions. It's beneficial to help others as well as to be receiving help. Um, the, the alarming thing, though, is that over two-thirds of, of people who have Alzheimer's disease, it is estimated, are undiagnosed. Hmm. We have a stigma. We worry about this. If we've had family members, ancestors that have had Alzheimer's disease, we may be reluctant to go seek help. Uh, we just simply may not want to hear those two letters. Yeah, that could be very scary. Uh, just to, we get into talking about what you should what things you should worry about and go seek a diagnosis, what things maybe not to worry about. Uh, prefacing that, we had a program a while back on uh, genetic testing. And it's all the rage now, and uh, you can, and the cost is coming down, maybe in the future to the point where I could go in for not too much money and have a complete genetic workup. But the question is, should I? And I wonder with regard to <laughs> Alzheimer's. You know, that's a good question, Tom. And I think it really is up to the individual. If you tend to be a person who's going to then get the news that maybe you have a set of genes that will increase your, your risk and almost worry yourself into an onset that's earlier, then maybe it's not such a good idea. Um, as I mentioned before, there's these deterministic genes, which are very rare, but that is more of a, a certainty. And then there are these other genes, some that we know about and some that are being discovered as we speak, yet to be discovered, that are associated with risk either higher or lower risk for Alzheimer's disease. But frankly, I think for the, at least for my own personal opinion, and this will differ by individual, uh, 
there are those that say having your entire genetic profile and knowing what all those genes mean will help you to plan better. Um, I, I personally think that if we take the knowledge that we're gaining from research, such as the Cache County study, and try to change our lifestyle habits so that we just take on a more uh, wellness uh, approach to life, that will do a lot, a lot more good for individuals and for society as a whole than having all of us know exactly what our genetic, uh, our genes are that we've inherited and, and then the worry and the, the stress. And the, because again, that, as I say, stress, if you, if you know that you've got this APOE E4 allele, now I need to really worry because my risk is maybe two or three times as high given that I have that allele. So I'm going to stress and fret about it. And when I lose the keys one day, I'm going to be sure that I have it. Mm. And it may not necessarily be all that healthy. Mm. I think keeping socially engaged and keeping physically healthy and emotionally as healthy as we can be are probably better bets. So if I'm starting to forget the keys and uh, maybe I start to worry about this, what, what things should I worry about? What things should I not worry about? Well, that, that's a really excellent question. Given that we know that the two-thirds of the people are undiagnosed, maybe we ought to be going out and doing complete surveillance of an entire community. And at the recent uh, international conference on Alzheimer's disease in Boston held just last month, we, we saw reports uh, from multiple studies that suggest that we're not quite ready yet to do complete population surveillance where a routine check when you go to the doctor for 100% of people over 65 is let's check and see if you have Alzheimer's disease. We're really not there yet because population level sc complete screening uh, hasn't proven to be worth that extra cost. Mm -hmm. But on an individual personal basis, if I walk into the room and I can't remember where I put the keys or I'm at the grocery store and I can only remember maybe six of those eight things and I'm really frustrated, I can't remember those other two things, that's not something to really worry about. That happens to everybody as you get older. Mm. The kinds of symptoms that you need to start thinking about is where you begin to actually have frequent word-finding difficulties, which really surprises you. You ought to be able to retrieve a word just in common use in language and you can't retrieve words you tend to start getting lost, getting to and from familiar places that you used to be able to, to find easily. Um, your, your memory is getting a lot worse, so you're noticing and your friends are noticing compared to people of your same age. You begin to not be able to follow a plot in a book or even follow the storyline of a TV program. You get confused and wonder, what was it I just saw? Those kinds of things are a little bit more in that gray zone where it's worth checking it out. It's worth going in and, and seeing what the, uh, the workup might tell you. It might just be that you have something called mild cognitive impairment. And many of those so-called MCI cases do not ever turn into dementia. Mm. It is a higher ri risk, of course, but m roughly 40 or 50% of those never even turn into dementia. So mm -hmm. it, it's, uh, I think information is power. And there's a lot of reasons. There's a big push now in Alzheimer's circles and geriatric health uh, to, to have early detection. Because if you do actually have this process going on in the brain, since we don't yet have a cure, then there's a lot of uh, benefits to the individual and to their families that you can be looking ahead while the person is still cognitively intact enough to make a lot of important decisions for themselves. Uh, you're still very capable cognitively, even once you've crossed that clinical threshold where you can be diagnosed and having the the person themselves involved in decisions and you know residence decisions financial decisions and as treatments come available that can slow down that rate of decline effective treatments you want to be 
right there at the front, already worked up, diagnosed, and ready to avail yourselves of those opportunities. But if you live in fear and denial and decide, I'm just not going to get this checked out no matter how bad it gets, well, then you don't avail yourselves of all those opportunities Mm -hmm. that I think are important to families as well as to individuals and then, again, society as a whole. Uh, I can see how uh, one reason I could just you know, imagine why two-thirds are not diagnosed. Uh, you know, putting myself in that position, that's a lot of fear. So those two letters, AD, Alzheimer's disease, and, and uh, that fear is very powerful, and maybe you don't want to know. You're, you're saying there are some treatments. You can what delay the disease, make it, make it a little better. There, uh, that might be a powerful reason to get somebody in to get diagnosed, right? Right. I, again, kind of heralding back to these different lifestyle choices and making sure that you uh, minimize risk for head injury and that you're eating well and being physically active. Right now, many of us... Uh, may actually have this process having already begun in our brains and we don't know it. So uh, I think what we have to try our best to do as individuals is just simply beat the odds and and realize that if we are uh, not active and socially isolated and highly stressed, not coping well, eating a really horrible diet, we are probably literally on a course aiming for Alzheimer's disease if we happen to also have the genes that are uh, predisposing us to that. Those things in combination may well be heading many of us towards it. And I think just taking advantage and getting the word out to the population that there are things that we can do that will maybe not guarantee that you won't get it. But by golly, I would certainly like to have my risk cut in half mm-hmm. if there are things that I can do. Yeah, And certainly. that's where we are today. We, we, mm-hmm. don't, we don't even know if we see a person's full genetic profile that we can guarantee they're going to get it unless it's one of those very extremely rare deterministic genes. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of odds, and I I think you can potentially, for many of us, we can beat the odds Mm -hmm. and and delay the onset if not prevent it. Now, there's an interesting statistic in epidemiologic circles called the 5-50 rule, and that says that if we can actually delay the onset of disease, suppose we can't prevent it in, in a group of individuals, but we can delay the onset by just five years of when the person actually develops it, well, we can cut in half the prevalence by 50%. Hmm. And that will be an enormous impact. So definitely we're looking at all of those points along the continuum to, to design interventions. Those where we already have mild cognitive impairment. What can we do to delay the onset if it is going to happen? Those that actually have the disease, what medications can we give people to actually slow down the decline? And at present, we don't have any medications that can reverse this process. We have medications that help a little bit with some of the symptoms. Um, but they're limited mm-hmm. in what they can do. Uh, it's interesting, though, in the care, so-called caregiving world, the whole caregiving environment that a person lives within when they have Alzheimer's disease, they typically have uh, a key person who's caring for them, checking in on them, and probably living with them as they get more and more advanced in uh, their progression of the disease. And we've discovered some very interesting things in uh, the dementia progression spinoff study from the Cache County study led by Dr. Joanne Schantz. in in the Department of Psychology, and we've published several studies that are giving us hope and encouragement about things about the caregiving environment. Hmm. We've been talking about caregiving. That's very important. Uh, As we've been saying, the majority, vast majority of Alzheimer's patients uh, are being cared for by family members, right? It's it's, it's at home. So it's it's very important. We'll get to talking about some elements of caregiving, give you some advice there. Um, We have uh, gerontologist uh, Maria Norton, and uh, she's with the uh, 
USU Department of Family, uh, Consumer, and Human Development. She's an associate professor. She's giving the Sunrise Sessions lecture. Sunrise Sessions is sponsored by the uh, Office of Research and Graduate Studies at USU. It's a periodic lecture. Researchers uh, give a lecture uh, sort of to the general audience, and that's in Salt Lake City. And the, the next one's coming up Friday morning, 7.30, Little America Hotel. And you can find out more information at RGS, that stands for Research and Graduate Studies, rgs.usu.edu slash sunrise. Uh, we do have a question uh, come in as well, which we will uh, we will treat, uh, not treat, um, I have uh, Alzheimer's uh, and uh, other medical conditions on the brain here. Uh, we will address uh, the question, and uh, we want your question as well. If you have a question regarding Alzheimer's, regarding caregiving, we'd like to know your story. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can reach us by email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Maria Norton is with us. We're talking about Alzheimer's disease and caregiving. More on caregiving following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Krem Brothers Artists and Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches, and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting the marvelous Wonderettes, with seven other productions through October in 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams talking about healthy aging. Uh, that is the topic of a Sunrise Sessions talk. It's going to be given by Maria Norton, who's Associate Professor of uh, Family and Consumer and Human Development in the USU. Uh, these are talks sponsored by the Office of Research and Graduate Studies at Utah State University. They're held in Salt Lake City. The next one is this coming Friday morning. 7.30 is when it starts at Little America Hotel. You can find out more information about that at rgs.usu.edu slash sunrise. We're talking about Alzheimer's disease. Some 50,000 Utahns are affected by Alzheimer's disease. Utah has the nation's highest growth rate of the disease, 127%. It's estimated that care costs will reach over $1.2 trillion nationwide by 2050. I believe that's because Maria Norton, the baby boomers, will be heading into those years where it'd be uh, diagnosed. And uh, we've been saying throughout the program that a, a vast majority of people with Alzheimer's are uh, being cared for at home. This is a disease where, where you're cared for at home. That puts a lot of pressure on the caregivers. We'll get into talking about uh, healthy caregiving, what you can do as a caregiver. We do have an email. This is from uh, Francis. Thank you for this. What's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? That's what Francis says. Francis, that is an excellent question. Uh, dementia is a, is a word that we use to describe really just a cluster of symptoms. It isn't a disease per se. It is just a word that says we've got an individual with intellectual functioning, 
uh, mental functioning that is uh, been impaired to the point where it really impacts the person's ability to carry on their, their normal activities and to engage in social interactions. When you notice that it's impeding your ability to do these things, there are different clinical diagnostic criteria. So dementia being this cluster of symptoms, it can uh, come from a variety of different types of disease. Alzheimer's disease makes up about two-thirds of all of the dementias. And it's characterized by initially this forgetfulness and uh, troubles with short-term memory. Gradually it gets to uh, forgetting where you are, how to get to different places, and more uh, global effect on memory and recall and ability to learn new things. And then eventually it gets into the, uh, the realm of uh, inability to, to carry out daily activities of, of driving, getting places, even cooking, cleaning, and eventually even, even bathing and, and feeding oneself. So Alzheimer's disease is one type, but the second most common is multi-infarct dementia, and that comes from just multiple strokes. So it's in the vascular dementia category. And, and we find some individuals actually have a mix of the two types. Some it's more looking like Alzheimer's and less so from the vascular dementia, and others it's the opposite. Uh, but but dementia is the all-encompassing term that really just describes this pattern of uh, intellectual um, functioning uh, decline that impacts your life. I appreciate that question, Francis. And uh, we have another uh, about uh, 10 minutes uh, with the program here, and you could uh, get us your question. Perhaps you're caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's, uh, worried about it, and we have addressed a question before. We could readdress that of uh, what's the line? You, know, you forget your keys a few times versus uh, when you should be really worried and get into the doctor and get a diagnosis. Maria Norton's telling us the diagnosis is very important, and some two-thirds of people with Alzheimer's, it's undiagnosed. But there are treatments that can delay the disease and uh, other things you can do. So important to get that diagnosis. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Our email address is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Marie Norton, your colleague, uh, Joanne Chance with the uh, psychology department has done some work in, uh, in the environment, caregiving environment. Uh, when you tell us a little bit about that, if you, if you are in this situation, and, and many of us are, what... Uh, what sorts of things can we do to make that better for the individual with Alzheimer's and also for the caregiver? Well, there's a number of things that we've been looking at. And I'll, I'll say that Dr. Shantz's study is revolutionary in the sense that it's one of the very first in the world to actually be studying the caregiving, uh, dementia caregiving scenario from an entirely different vantage point. Instead of studying what's happening with the caregiver and the caregiver's well-being, which frankly is extremely important, but there's a wealth of research that's already telling us what's going on there and how we can help caregivers. What she's doing that's very novel is looking at factors in the caregiving environment that this person who, who's suffering from uh, Alzheimer's or other types of dementia uh, is living within and what can we do as caregivers? What we found, uh, one of the first papers that came out was one that I led, and that is where we were looking at just the quality of the relationship. I mean, who would have thought? This is a biological disorder. Who would have thought that having a closer relationship where you feel more approachable, you feel more appreciated, you're, you're, you have greater um, bond with the person that you're providing care for, we found out that that is related to a significantly slower rate of decline within dementia. So in other words, the person can look like they're functioning without dementia for longer, have higher levels of functioning for longer time, 
and therefore have higher quality of life for themselves um, living with dementia as well as for their caregivers just simply if you have a close relationship. Now, you can't wave a magic wand and, and maybe create a, a wonderfully close relationship, but perhaps you can realize that maybe there's things I can do even if I'm not so close to that person that could maybe help strengthen our relationship, different ways of thinking about it. Maybe if I can get some respite care and talk to other people and come back and, and realize it's not this person's fault that they have these various symptoms, things that I might be able to do to help foster a closer relationship and appreciation for that person suffering from dementia, those, uh, those things might actually help slow, potentially slow the rate of decline. We don't have proof that it slows it. All we're seeing is the people who have the closer relationships happen to be the people who's care receivers are declining significantly more slowly. Another area that we looked at was um, engaging the person with dementia in cognitively stimulating activities. Now, if you've got to go into the kitchen as a caregiver and prepare dinner, uh, the faster way to do it is you prepare dinner yourself and you allow the person with dementia maybe to sit there and, and watch the TV or something. The TV might be stimulating, but it might be a little bit one step better if you get them up off the couch and bring them into the kitchen and have them help you, talk to you about it, help them with the preparation of the meal, and give them a few uh, intellectual challenges and activities that can stimulate the brain. We found that uh, the caregivers who engage their care recipients in cognitively stimulating activities, those people decline more slowly. That mm. is to say, those the care receivers um, mm. that benefit from... Be, being asked to and being engaged in these uh, more cognitively stimulating activities, whatever that may be, sitting down and singing songs with them, rather than um, just kind of an inactive, um, you know, many hours after hours of, of inactivity, if you can engage them and talk about things. And um, and music is, you know, music therapy, of course, is another whole discipline, and that's proven to, to show some impressive effects on the brain. Another thing that we studied was the caregiver's own coping strategies. Now, all of us deal with stress of one type or another, and we have our own different unique ways of dealing with things. Those people um, who approach their problems more on an emotional level, like, gee, I wish this wasn't so, or gee, I need to think about blaming myself, I must be a bad person, or blaming other people, or uh, just, wishful, just wishing it would go away, those are not really constructive. And uh, the persons, on the other hand, who decide to be more proactive about, all right, here are some challenges ahead of us, some roadblocks, some things that maybe I can do something about and go get some help to alleviate different aspects of this overall problem. It's so-called problem-focused coping. And people who engage in that type of approach to their challenges, well, the persons for whom they provide care who have dementia, they decline more slowly. Hmm. Probably because they get, they get up and they do things that ultimately end up being more beneficial instead of just worrying and fretting about it. Mm -hmm. We have a new paper that hasn't even come out yet, but it's in press, that discusses uh, personality traits in the caregiver, and that's somewhat related to this coping strategy. And we found that caregivers who are much higher in neuroticism, they're neurotic, they're anxious, they're fretting, they're easily uh, distressed and stressed out, those are the people whose uh, loved ones that they're caring for, that they, they find uh, a more rapid rate of decline mm. in their, their, their uh, care receivers. Mm. Now, we can't wave a magic wand and undo our personality and all of a sudden become somebody who's not neurotic and anxious. But I think these kinds of studies can just help give us clues to perhaps begin to formulate how we might provide interventions to caregivers mm -hmm. to encourage different kinds of ways to approach challenges ways to just look at a problem in a different way.
Um, stress relief, stress management kinds of approaches. Those kinds of things could help. And uh, we just have a couple of minutes left, but uh, you're saying your introduction to your Sunrise Sessions talk is coming up on Friday. This not only affects us as individuals, it affects us as a society, right? And, and especially since baby boomers are getting older, and uh, we quoted those statistics, $1.2 trillion in costs. Uh, uh, the number of people with Alzheimer's, 5 million today in the nation, nearly tripled to 13.8 million uh, in, uh, by 2050. And so a lot of the things we've been talking about are going to affect us collectively as well. Absolutely. I mean, if you happen to be one of the rare people who never gets Alzheimer's, nobody in your family does, your children don't for the next 10 generations, are you going to be affected by this um, epidemic as the Center for Disease Controls and the Alzheimer's Association deem this Alzheimer's disease public health crisis that we have? Um, yes, you're going to be affected. Mm. I think we, we have serious concerns about our ability in the economy to be able to sustain that level of cost to care for individuals. The sheer loss of, of human uh, quality of life and being able to be productive citizens. I mean, I think older adults that are retired clear up until your last breath if you can avoid cognitive impairment and dementia. Well, think of all of the contributions and the wealth of knowledge and, and uh, ability to engage in different segments of society that those are all lost. So we all lose out when there's Alzheimer's disease, not to mention um, perhaps even among the adult children who often provide care to persons with dementia. They themselves often find that they have to literally quit their job. So it has huge financial impact on families. We'll leave it there. And if you want to hear more, you'll need to go to the Sunrise Session talk given by Maria Norton. She's with the Department of Family, Consumer, and Human Development at USU. That uh, Sunrise Sessions talk sponsored by the USU Office of Research and Graduate Studies is uh, Friday morning. It's coming Friday morning, 730 in the morning, Little America Hotel. Go to rgs.usu.edu slash sunrise. For uh, producer uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater in Logan with Beethoven's epic masterpiece, Misa Solemnis, August 7th, features symphony, renowned soloists, and the American Festival Chorus, conducted by Dr. Craig Jessup. Details are at utahfestival.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. In this month's commentary, UPR's Jennifer Pemberton tells us that while it's not exactly a time to celebrate, fire season can be a time of reflection for those of us who live in the West. In the beginning, there were those who followed warmth by migrating south as the glaciers pushed into northern Europe, and those who followed fire, an actual guy named Fir, who climbed a volcano and domesticated fire for human use. This is according to the story Fire and Ice by Danish writer Johannes V. Jensen. His opinion is that following fear means you're tough as nails and deserve to reproduce. The snowbirds in his story who migrate south are depicted as unevolved, tree-dwelling, jungle-loving savages. 
If you're the last one up watching the coals from the campfire go from orange to black, then you're probably a follower of fear. If you find the crackling of the fire more soothing than rain, then you're a follower of fear. If you live in the West, you are definitely a follower of fear. Fire is a part of life out West. We have a whole season for it. When fire comes out of the sky and comes up from the earth, it can burn through rain, it can jump over rivers. It's awesome. It's terrifying. I didn't know this made us special until I lived somewhere that didn't burn up every year. I didn't realize that we had our own language. Hot shots, smoke jumper, fire line, containment, pyrocumulus. Earlier this month, I drove to Boise, arriving late at night on the hottest day of the year. Actually, it was one degree shy of being the hottest day in Boise history. At 10 p.m., it was still over 100 degrees. The power went out where I was staying, and when our eyes adjusted to the dark, we discovered it wasn't dark at all outside. It was red, like a sunset, but it was midnight. The fire was so close, it called to us. We wanted to get closer, and so we got in the car and we drove towards it. We weren't the only car parked at the top of the hill just across the river from the perimeter. People had come from miles around to sit on the hoods of their cars and watch, to get showered with ash, to let the hot wind dry our sweat before it even escaped from our pores. This was three days after 19 firefighters died in Arizona. There was nothing else to think except, let it burn. Let that beautiful thing burn. That fire went on to burn over 46,000 acres of mostly BLM land. It was the equivalent of most of the neighboring towns put together, but there weren't any towns there. There was just wilderness, and wilderness is used to burning. Still, 250 people worked around the clock to put that fire out. They scooped up water from the reservoir and dumped it bucket by bucket over the flames. They dumped pink clouds of retardant from airplanes. They dug ditches with bulldozers like lines in the sand, daring the fire to cross it. When I was living in Alabama in grad school, my mom called one night to tell me that the house I grew up in in Southern California had burned up in a wildfire. The house that had a buffer of concrete and an outer ring of succulent ice plant and nothing but dirt beyond that. My room with a sprinkler in the ceiling that I used to pretend was a camera that I ritualistically waved goodnight to before turning out the lights. I imagined a room full of strangers who used to watch me sleep, some kind of big brother guardian angels, I know. It's weird. It was just a rumor about my childhood house burning down. The neighbors had called my parents as they were evacuating, and my mom assumed the worst. So someone still sleeps in that room at night, safe, watched. John McLean, who writes about Western wildfires, says that no structure is worth a human life. He told the rangers in the fire district around his cabin in Montana, the one his grandfather built by hand, not to defend it against fire. I'm prepared to let the cabin go, he writes in a commentary. Consider it the most effective insurance I can buy for the fire crews. I think it's important to know where you stand on the relationship between fire and home and life. To live in the West, you need to know what you're willing to sacrifice. You need to know how far you're willing to follow fear. When will children learn to let their wildernesses burn? This is Jennifer Pemberton for Utah Public Radio.